Hello and welcome back to Absurdity. My name is Ryan Becker and I am joined by my four inches taller than me co-host, Henry Johnson. We actually figured this out the other day and he is four inches taller than me, but in the video, I'm going to make myself like an inch taller just to make myself feel a little bit better. Now, to be fair, I'm probably five inches taller because you just got a haircut. I did just get a haircut and uh, I, I hope that I look better now, but I'll leave it to our listeners and viewers to uh, to determine. But I am excited you, you to a, to dive in. Took a few stories. I, took a few stories oh, man. off the top, huh? You want a you want a weight loss program? What people don't know is in the last episode, I had my hair in a bun. Like my hair was that long. My hair was down to about my chin on top. It was very very long, and I am praising. I I am just so happy that I get an hour, extra hour of sleep now <laughs> uh, that I don't have to be doing my hair the whole time. So it's fantastic, and I'm really happy about it. I'm so glad. Speaking of taking a few stories off the top, like an Israeli missile in the Gaza Strip, let's talk about what we're talking about today. Yeah, um, well, if we're not going to start by <laughs> offending everyone that, that listens, that'd be great. Um, I do want to say, actually, right before we jump into that, I, I just want to say, uh, a big thank you to everyone who has kind of responded so positively, and even those who responded negatively uh, to our last episode. The fact that we've been doing Absurdity for 100 and, and almost 60 episodes now, and to have an episode just completely dwarf all the others, um, not even dwarf, dwarf doesn't even seem to do justice for how much that, that video is done. It. You know, at the time that we're recording this, that video has now 20,000 views, and what what new what new listeners may not be aware of is that last year I had set a goal of literally a year ago I'd set a goal to monetize this channel and it's not because I want to make money off the channel I don't I think that monetizing is one of the worst ways to make money on YouTube to be honest the the goal was just a hardline goal it was can I do this the thousand subscribers and 4,000 watch hours in 12 months and I was doing really well at the start and then I had some significant nerve issues we actually had our editor of this podcast who passed away and I had two shows at the time plus a YouTube channel plus a full-time job and all of a sudden I was editing scripting doing outlines Henry you and I were having trouble and Tony who used to be the co-host for this show until December, he stepped away for a new marriage and a, and a new job as well. Um, you know, we, we were having some problems creatively with, with, both, with, with both of those shows too. And so all of this set in, I started to have really bad nerve problems in my arms. Basically, I couldn't create content for six months. And I had basically all but given up on being able to monetize the channel and given up on that goal. And we were coming right up on a year, which means that within the next couple weeks, of this episode airing, I would start to lose the subscriber momentum and watch time momentum I had gained at the start with my first few videos. And that was really disheartening for me, but it was, I just kind of accepted it. And then I was posting podcast episodes on video because now we're actually, we've been filming them. And, you know, I just wanted content to be up on a weekly basis and have that channel be active for the subscribers who are there. And all of a sudden this happened. And we, I went from, you know, being down 2,000 listeners and needing 320 subscribers. So I was at 2.3, you know, 2,300 watch hours and 680 subscribers. And to know that I've now doubled the subscriber count and absolutely blew past the watch time in one week 
is just like, I can't express to anyone how much that means to me, both as validation for the content that we've been creating for years, but also just because it helped me hit a goal that I thought I wasn't going to be able to do because of my physical problems. And so I just, I really want to say thank you to everyone. I hope that you enjoy, you know, what you're about to hear today and and hope you enjoy episodes that you've listened to even prior. Um, and as you, as you do listen and, and as you're, as you're checking out the show, just, um, thank you so much. Continue to engage with us. And yeah, let's, let's dive into today's topic, uh, which Henry, uh, started us off on, well, a foot, I guess he started, he started us off on a foot, which is, uh, the, I'm sure the comments are already scrolling about, aha, we've seen he's picked sides. You know? Yes. <laughs> the, the, which this isn't, it is and isn't a thing to pick sides on. And this isn't like a, we're not trying to say, this isn't going to be a both sides episode, but it's also not going to be a, we pick a side episode. And there are certain things that, that we are, I, I think that we're going to talk about here that are, that we believe are important to talk about. But I think one of the, one of the, as we talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and we're not going to go through the whole history, we may, you know, bring up certain pieces of it, but I think the one thing that gets lost in a lot of these conversations and a lot of Christian conversations in general is the idea of nuance, right? This idea that yeah. you don't just have to take one position, hard line in the sand, and you can't ever, you know, deviate from it. You can't ever have any sort of nuance or perspective added to it. It's either all or nothing black and white. And none of these issues are black and white. And that's the yeah, problem. It kind of reminds me. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, it kind of reminds me, I think it was a, I don't remember what place I saw this cartoon. And it, it was back, I think, 2003 when we were going into Afghanistan or it might have even been 2005 when we went back into Iraq and people were talking about how do you deal with the Middle East. And it was a cartoon, a one-frame cartoon, and it showed a massive parking lot stretching as far as the eye could see and just row after row of spaces, you know, the parking lines in it. And the bottom caption said, why turning the Middle East into a parking lot won't solve anything. Mm. And in the middle of this huge parking lot going everywhere, you see two cars. One has an Israeli flag on it and one has like a Palestinian flag. And they're both trying to pull into the same parking space. And the, both the drivers are leaning out, throwing their fists at each other, going, I was here first. And sometimes I feel like that's yep. <laughs> how, how we all treat this issue. Yes. And that's the, the issue is like, we no, there, there are no winners when we do that. Like, and, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that there has to be a winner and a loser here. Granted, if this was an if this was an issue that you and I could provide a solution for, we are in the wrong profession. We do not get paid enough. And honestly, that worries me about the qualifications of other people if two random guys on a podcast can, you know, in in the US can solve a problem that we've never really been an integral part of. So it's absurd to think that, that we have absurd. answers for so that. So yeah, if you're coming here expecting answers or expecting a hard stance on one side against the other, sorry to disappoint off the bat. Um, but I think there we do want to approach this with the with the with a couple things in mind. Number one is nuance and number two is the is is the confession and in kind of disclaimer up front that yeah we're two people from america henry has been to israel and i'm sure you know we'll probably get into that a bit but like i haven't and to the west bank as well yes. i haven't been into gaza but and and so the the reality though is we're largely disconnected from this and the privilege of this is that we get to talk about this and then we get to then we go back to you know whatever we're doing and largely unaffected by this thing that's happening on the other side of the world 
And that's a reality that that is true. We understand that. However, that also shouldn't dis- discount anyone's opportunity to talk about it and to have conversation that's meaningful about it and seek some way to process and 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 understand these different things. So we we Yeah, and and yeah. I think what we want to mainly do if you couldn't figure out from the title is we do want to speak to something we think we can relate to. We we're not Israeli, we're not Palestinian. We don't live in the Middle East. We've never lived in the Middle East. You know, as he, as he said before, we're not the diplomatic corps or the United Nations or or our government officials, any, anything like that. But we are human, and I think at its core, we're going to talk about this. Uh, we have to realize that Israeli and Palestinians are human too, and because we're human, we all share certain things in common, including you know poor interactions between people, you know. Uh, pains and and struggles and a lot of undealt with grief, which that's a whole nother topic for another time. I think this pandemic and COVID has proven that a lot of us don't know how to deal with our frustrations and anger. But, you know, that that's a common element we can speak to. And so, yeah, and what, we, what we're going to posit today in talking about the most recent conflict there between the Israelis and Palestinians is that we really believe a lot of this, uh, we know there's a lot of geopolitical factors and histories and and shed blood and all that. We're not trying to minimize that. But we want to talk to what we think is a lot of bad theologies underlying a lot of the conflict. And by bad theologies, if you think we're about to have some sort of big Christian talk about how Islam sucks or something, that's not what we mean by that. I'm not trying to say it's bad theology because they're a Jew or because they're Muslim. That That's not what we mean by bad theologies. We're not trying to sit here and take a, a baseball bat to somebody's faith community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about more of a bad human theology, and yeah, it does intersect with with faith communities as well, but we, uh, we want to talk about some elements that, in, in our view, inter- intersect with the human condition and are causing problems, and it's something that needs to be talked about. So that's kind of the yeah. absurd angle we're taking, that there is some things that need to be dealt with, and we will be picking on one point, giving it away, we, we are going to be picking on a bit of poor theology specifically, but that theology has nothing to do with Islam versus Christianity. That has to do with Western Christianity basing a key proponent or component of their eschatology, which is a fancy theological term for end-time understanding. So eschatology means how will the world end, right? A key point of our theological eschatology is not even based on our own scriptures. It's based off of a novel or a set of novels, and it's caused a lot of problems. And so we will take yep. a bat at that but so stay tuned let's get into let's get into it um and start talking just a brief overview of where we are right now uh which is there was a ceasefire that was announced uh just a couple days ago on may 21st yep. yeah so just a couple days ago about 2 a.m local time and so as far as i know i haven't actually you know the day that we're recording this i haven't i hadn't checked i think they're still honoring it which is nice if they are, but if they they are, if they've think, broken it by the time this goes live, in. that's going to be awkward. But but so this started um, <laughs> yeah. this started April 13 uh, at the beginning of Ramadan, and actually Henry, I'd love for you to, to uh, kind not, of take not us the through fighting. No, 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 no. But there were the, some. Yeah. There were there were the the initial kind of the initial rumblings of what became this. Um, right. What contributed then. to it? Yeah. So and again, this is not an exhaustive account, you can go to several news sources and and really get more detailed accounts on this. But as best we understand it, 
Uh, several things contributed to this latest round of, of fighting that seems to happen in cyclical movements every so many years. Uh, but the latest was a confluence of things. One, the Palestinian Authority, which was a body that, you know, based in the West Bank, and there has been a kind of a breach. So the Pal when we talk about the Palestinians, it's not one cohesive unit anymore. There is Hamas, which is recognized by many Western powers as a terrorist organization. Uh, they dominate a two-mile area called the Gaza Strip on the coast. And then you have the Fatah movement with the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, who is based in the West Bank and his political party. And they run the Palestinian Authority, which was an organization, thanks to the second Oslo Accords, I believe, that was given limited authority over Palestinian areas in exchange for recognizing Israel's right to exist. That's a whole different political issue. Um, but they have that. And they were supposed to hold an election because the last election they had was like 15 years ago. And needless to say, it was partly the results of that. And Fatah and Hamas worried about who was dominating that election and how that was going to go, you know, like politicians anywhere, except unlike certain other systems that have more robust systems and organizations in place, they basically fought a skirmish with themselves and then split the area and never really held an election since. So these people have been just running the mm. show without any popular mandate forever. And they finally said they were going to have elections. And then a few weeks back, uh, Mahmoud Abbas canceled them. Surprise, surprise. Uh, partly because many people think he th say he thought he was going to lose the election. And so he doesn't want to lose his job. And partly they accused Israel of not allowing Palestinians in East Jerusalem, which is a contested part of Jerusalem. It's a contested city. Politically, they were saying, well, they can't vote in that area, so it's not safe to hold elections. So I think there was already Palestinian frustration. And this also happened at a time where you had Ramadan taking place, which is an extremely holy time in the Islamic faith. And obviously, two of the most holy sites in major religious circles today are in Jerusalem on what's commonly called the Temple Mount. Right, So there is what's commonly called the Wailing Wall, which was actually a retaining wall for the Second Temple in Jerusalem for the Jews, the Jewish temple that was actually built by Herod the Builder. Right, So it's not like Solomon's Temple or anything like that for those who might be trying to think of biblical imagery for the temple. Uh, but it's the retaining wall, and it's considered the holiest site in modern Jewish you know, religion. Mm -hmm. But on top of that is something commonly called, in, in English, the Dome of the Rock, Right, sitting there, and it's uh, it's Al Aska Mosque, or I'm, Aksa. I'm remembering Aksa. Aksa, yeah. See, I I, I butchered that. My Alexa thinks uh, literally. My Alexa just lit up. That's that. No, I thought you were talking about it. Yeah, yep. It thought I, I when I, I said don't say Aksa, that, or else, or else she's going to think I'm talking that, to her. Did too. it again? Yep. I'm going to mute it. There we yep. go. We're good. Oh, okay. But in any case, this is also a revered site. I think it's like the third holiest site in Islam. And so, obviously, during Ramadan, which is a period of fasting and dedicating yourself to the service of Allah and, and really focusing the mind, and you don't eat during the daylight hours, and you break the fast every evening or whatnot, but prayers being important to both faiths, but especially to Islam in this time, a lot of Palestinians were wanting to get to the mosque to do prayers and the Israeli police, by all appearances, again, we weren't there, but by all appearances, heavy-handedly 
trying to disperse this or prevent several of them from getting to pray. And that inflamed tensions. And then that also hit with two final things we'll say that also coincided with the Jerusalem Day March, which is a period where a lot of Zionist youth and adults, Zionism being a, a, a political ideology as well as in, in the past also being an ethnic ideology to a certain extent, the idea of Israel uh, dominant, the Jews have a right to this area, it's their ancestral homeland, and that Jerusalem should be its undivided capital. They usually do a, a very Israel-centric march, and they intentionally go through the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. And so that was raising tensions because it intersected with Ramadan this year. Mm -hmm. So that was not going to look good. And then finally, to the, the final bit of gas, I think, prepared for this fire— was the idea that there was a court case working its way through the Israeli judicial system that was supposed to have been settled, but they've delayed it since because of the conflict that broke out. They were looking into possibly evicting several Palestinian families in East Jerusalem. As best I can tell, not being an expert in the legal case, uh, there was a Jewish landlord, I think, that was arguing they weren't paying rent or something else, and they needed to be evicted. But of course, then Jewish settlers were going to come in their place. And this is already a sensitive issue, uh, the, the idea of Israeli settlements and, and Palestinians that have lived there even before the creation of the state of modern state of Israel. And, and so it looked like the Supreme Court was going to, the Israeli Supreme Court was going to rule on that. And in the past, it hasn't always ruled favorably for Palestinians. So I think all of those things combined put the gasoline out, and it was just waiting for a spark. And Hamas uh, then turned around and said, hey, um, because of the way you've been violent with the police and the way you have not handled things in Jerusalem here in Ramadan successfully, um, you know, they said, listen, you need to stop with this heavy-handed policing and the threatened eviction of Palestinians in East Jerusalem and if you don't, we're going to, you know, protect the mosque. We're going to protect Islam. We're going to do something to protect our people. And when Israel just kind of ignored them, they started firing rockets out of the Gaza Strip. And they fired several towards Jerusalem and then obviously Tel Aviv and several other cities. But that, that was the main two that got Israel to go. That's a red line. You can't cross that. And they started airstrikes and calling up reservists and moving artillery to the border and By the way, you had 11 days of conflict. Yeah, this started May 10 is when the actual first rockets were fired at 6 p.m. on May 10. That's like that's how quickly this this kind of escalated and turned into what it what it you know, what it was prior to this up to up until the ceasefire. So just crazy to think about, like how quickly that that just escalated. Yeah. Yeah, and it did in 11 days. And a lot of the international community, again, as they usually do, got involved and they were trying mediation through Egypt and Qatar, I believe. And finally, a ceasefire was worked because it's hard for the several parties to do a ceasefire, especially when some of the major players like the United States don't recognize Hamas as a legitimate government. So they don't actually directly speak with them. So that makes it complex. Uh, but a ceasefire at the time we're recording, this seems to be holding and needless to say, the Gaza Strip came off worse for wear in this conflict while Hamas fired like 4,000-some missiles. Most of the death toll is in the Gaza Strip. Yep. Right? And most of the horrid visual imagery was not of missiles hitting Israelis, but of apartment complexes and other things getting just blown to bits by Israeli airstrikes. 
and a lot of civilian casualties. And I know that the building that was holding Al Jazeera and the Associated Press and several others were taken out. And, and of course, Israel would say they're targeting tunnels and Hamas gun networks and missile battery storage areas and whatnot. Hamas argues they're just targeting hospitals and everything else. And it's a kind of he said, yeah, he just said. targeting hospitals. <laughs> like, that's okay. Uh, the... Not that hiding behind civilian infrastructure is okay either. No, no, no. I agree. I just like then you get into the yeah, then I, you, then you get into the complexities of its its war. Yeah, and only in the modern centuries have we decided there has to be a morality about war. It's war, but anyway, <laughs> it's once you start shooting, where did the morality go? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the so in my mind, I think one of the you know, one of the worst parts of this to me is how every single time this has happened, every single time there's this there's this big conflict between the between Israel and between Palestine, the the Palestinians end up coming up real, real short. Like they get outgunned and outmanned every single time. And they are still fighting. I think they're getting billions their... in military. Correct. They're aid not getting billions either. in military aid, which is which is what you know, which is what compounds onto this. But but the bottom line is like if you if you look throughout the historical what are called intifadas, there have been two major ones in one in the eighties and one in early you know, and one in two thousand one is is when it started. And you're talking, you know, one to three ratio. Or, or more, or a greater ratio of, you know, Palestinians to, or sorry, Israelians to, Israelis to Palestinian deaths, right? So you're talking 100. I think it's the 2014 war is the only one where the numbers of Israelis went up significantly, but there was a ground incursion into Gaza. So they yes. actually had troops on the ground. They weren't just relying on missiles and, and jets. Yep. Yeah, and that's that's the the big thing here is like the Palestinians always come up short and they have, they have throughout all of history with with this conflict where Israel has key allies that are feeding them a lot of money and military aid. And there's just so much that there's only so much that you can do. But that that just goes to show how how complex this whole thing is. If it could be solved overnight, it would have been by now is kind of how I feel. Right. So to me, it's a it's been a problem going on for decades and decades and decades yeah. and decades. The I am glad for a ceasefire, though, and I and I think the I think the most that we can do here as Christians, as as you know, you're a pastor currently. I was a pastor. Now I I am involved still as a ministry leader, and still heavily involved in ministry, but but just not as a pastor necessarily. I would actually argue that that my podcasting tends to be a big part of the ministry that I do, though I actually am like professionally outside of the show involved. The I think we can speak to that from our perspectives on everything as well. And I think it's, I think the one thing to point out in this as well is the changing U.S. sentiment or changing civilian sentiment regarding this entire back and forth. Because up until I would say probably 2016, 2017, maybe, um, even though we still saw it with, with, with Trump, um, there was heavy, heavy, and significant bias in favor of Israel, uh, of Israel, and with from the U.S. 
And really, it was just Democrats that were majorly against it in any significant polls that were taken. But but for the most part, most of the U.S. and especially Republicans were very much in favor of of supporting Israel. And any time that these big fights happened, it was just kind of a it's over there. We don't need to worry about it, whatever. And the we're not involved. But with social media, and I've said this several, several times on this show, with social media, I do believe that we're in the midst of a revolution. And, you know, think like the industrial revolution, but with social media, because social media has given power back to the individual. It's given power back to someone who has no platform. It's given them a platform. It's given them a way to amplify their voices and amplify their voice in a way that can actually be heard and make an impact. And so what you start, what we're starting to see now is, is, and you can call it propaganda to some degree. It kind of is because it's meant to sway public opinion. And but the the bottom line is you're seeing a lot more footage and a lot more photos of the suffering and the carnage and death that is happening as a result of the significant firepower that Israel brings to the table. And now you're seeing an actual fit. You're actually seeing faces, names and emotions being put to the numbers that, you know, the death tolls on screen. And that's harder to look away from. I mean, if you were on Reddit's public freakout subreddit for, you know, the entire the entire 10 day period, it was almost flooded with nothing but videos coming from the Gaza Strip of, you know, kids picking up what remains they could find of their home or, you know, a family uh, cursing, uh, cursing Israel for what they've done or anything. And it, it just it just makes me think of, too, the the sentiment of why we've seen a, a rise in terrorists following, you know, the U.S. invading, uh, the U.S. invading Iraq in after, after 9-11, right? You kill a bunch of civilians and those civilians, family and friends are only going to harbor more hatred. They're not going to just say, ah, oh, no, we're fine. Yeah, that, that's enough. We, you know, we will let bygones be bygones now, right? That's going to, that's going to make you angry. That's going to make you uh, you know, want retribution and revenge. And that's just what that reminds me of as I see that kind of anger coming and f- continue continuing to fuel this conflict. And I, it, that's why I say like, I don't, there's no solution that I have off the, off the top of my head that just magically cures this. But it, it those are some of the things that outright are really Something there are things that I believe I, I need to point out and and are important as they color the conversation for sure. But yeah, so what are your thoughts here and and where are you seeing are you seeing any sort of path forward? Are you seeing any way that we or any way that we can in into intelligently or with emotional intelligence, you know, interact with this with this whole thing? Well, First of all, let's let's deal with what I think we can deal with as far as what we have the most direct impact on potentially and probably a lot of people that are watching. Now, let's talk as two Americans, two Christian Americans, if you want to – I don't even like that phrase, but you I know, know what I mean. Yes, Christians uh, that are Ameri- and, and U.S. citizens, yes. That are U.S. citizens, yes, yes. Now, let, let's talk a little bit about how the United States in particular, Christians and Christian voters – and the United States are contributing, I think, to this never-ending cycle of violence in Israel-Palestine, you know, between in that area. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, a lot of this, Christians weren't really heavily involved in the United States, even caring about what happened in the Middle East for most, of, you know, for half of the first 
the first half of the 20th century. You know, it was it was considered an area that was already in a Christian sphere of influence, and by that I mean it was part of the British Empire. Yeah, right. So so Britain controlled that area, and and everyone therefore thought, well, the British Empire, you know, Anglicanism, all of that stuff. It's it's all Christian. Who cares about it? People could travel. You know, the Ottoman Empire was in the area, but it was relatively, it was faced with its own internal problems. It wasn't really preventing anybody from being able to travel or do anything. And for the most part, up until the nineteen late 1940s, it was purely a political issue to most and one that didn't really concern anybody but diplomats, right? So you had the, the, the Balfour Declaration where Britain said they thought the Jews needed a carved out area for themselves in their territory. And then the League of Nations, which is the predecessor to the United Nations, gave Britain the the job in the 20s, like, well, you handle it. You know, you, mm. it, you govern this area and you figure it out. And everyone kind of ignored it until, you know, dun da da this thing called the Second World War. And there had already been Jewish immigration into the Palestine area Right, but that really accelerates after the end of the Second World War, thanks to something called the Holocaust. And, and you know, let's just throw this out here right now because that's not our topic today. But as somebody who has personally set foot in three different concentration camps in Europe, including the largest, Auschwitz-Birkenau, right, it, it where over a million were exterminated in that one camp alone. And, and, and just as a way as an aside, because I know we're in a, a growing era of people that deny this happened or say it couldn't have been as bad as possible or they make all that stuff up and, yeah. you know, kind of the conspiracy-laden world that we're in. And may I just say for the record, I will never forget when I was walking in Birkenau, and some of our viewers might have even been there. If you do, you remember there's the famous rail gate that the trains would come in. <laughs> And, and then you can walk around. This is a huge square out camp and you're walking. And we were walking at one point and the tour guide I had, the Polish tour guide I had, pointed to the ground in response to something and said, look at the color of the, you know, the dirt or the, the firma we were, terra firma we were walking on. And it was kind of grayish. And he made the comment that if he had made his hand into a fist and shoved it into the ground, we were standing up all the way almost to his elbow. That was ash mm. that had fallen back on the camp from the from the furnaces. And, and that's something when you're standing there and you're looking at your feet and realizing you're standing on six to eight inches of human ash, right? That had so much of it had fallen, it saturated the ground. And it's just sickening to think about what humans do to other humans. And so I just want to go out there and say, I'm sorry, folks, the Holocaust did happen. Uh, you're not going to get any Holocaust denial here. It, it happened. It was horrific. Anti-Semitism is real, right? And I, I don't want to, you know, and I want to be careful and be upfront. It's probably wise to say, because the moment you say anything that sounds politically against the state of Israel, they accuse you of anti-Semitism or you hate Jews, or, or anything like that. And may I just say, on, on behalf of Ryan and myself, we don't. This We're not trying to make any sort of ethnic statement. Uh, we're making purely human or political statements, yes. right? Uh, that We're not going that way. But anyway, I got off track on the Holocaust. Uh, when that happened, obviously, then large amounts of Jews had good reason to be like, we're out. We're leaving Europe. Uh, we're not wanted here. That was a really bad experience. Uh, we're going to go find our own homeland. And then as they, they came in, the United Nations carved out an area for Israel, 1948, and they kind of split it between Palestine and, and Israel. 
And a lot of the locals that had been there a lot longer than the Jewish settlers were not thrilled with that, which I can understand that when you feel mm. like you're getting kind of evicted from your home. And basically a conflict broke out, the first of a gazillion that have happened since. Yeah. And and it's been contentious ever since. Uh, the biggest one being obviously in 1967 when the Seven Days War, and then you have the occupation of East Jerusalem, of the Golan Heights, which was a part of, still recognized internationally as part of Syria, and the Gaza Strip and this kind of thing. So all that to say, when all of that began happening is when Christians started taking notice in the United States. And in particular, interestingly enough, and I say this as a, as a former Southern Baptist, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is still the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, now, and particularly in the area of the country you and I live in. Yes. Uh, you know, there's they're, they're everywhere. It's shocker and, and that the Southern realize, Baptists would be big here in the South. In the South. Shocker. Real twist, plot twist there, Henry. Really, I'm nice I know, but what most people don't realize... Now, now here's something. I, I'm curious if you even know this. What was the U.S. president in office in the time in the late 40s that recognized officially the state of Israel and American support for that? Woodrow Wilson. No, no that's I know. World War One. No, no, no. But, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I actually don't remember. Um, it wasn't FDR. Harry Truman. It, yeah, I was gonna say it wasn't. It wasn't. It was. Yes, thank you. I'm actually yes, terrible for anyone watching. Realize. I'm actually terrible at like trivia. Just so we're all clear, I am miserable at trivia. I feel better now. All right. Well, we still. Love I could have guessed George Washington. Uh, that's how bad at trivia I am. And I know I don't when think you're that bad, I'm not but, that bad. Let's be clear. I'm not that bad. <laughs> but anyway, the point that I was going to get to is not that people don't know it was Harry Truman, but Harry Truman was actually a Jew that converted to the Southern Baptist faith. Oh, that I definitely didn't know. Yes. And so when he came out, it changed a lot of the opinion of the Southern Baptist Convention, which obviously has a huge sway on what would later become the evangelical movement here in the United States, and they began viewing American support for Israel in a theological prism. They mm. began viewing it by, I would just, I'm just going to put my cards on the table, misappropriating First Testament, commonly called the Old Testament scriptures, about covenantal promises made to Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, not the modern political state of Israel, about them having covenantal rights to mm -hmm. this land, that those who support the nation of Israel are blessed by God, and those who don't support the nation of Israel will not be blessed by God. And they began, and that also intersected when you start getting into the 60s and 70s with the rise of the evangelical movement in America, uh, which evangelicalism had really, I think, been coming out of the UK in the 60s before that, but that's another podcast for another time. Anyway, it started intersecting with eschatology, again, that understanding of what happens at the end of time. And Christian theology was really being influenced by the Left Behind series of books. It wasn't a movie then. And, and in fact, now I'm trying to remember if Left Behind was actually the name of the books, or it's just, I know it's the name of the movies that were based off of the books. I'll but Google in any it case, while, you, while you keep talking. Answer that? Okay. And, and in short, what it was saying was that the and even majority evangelical thought, I know there's nuances, again, we're talking about nuance in, in everything, is that the second coming of Christ isn't going to take place until the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem mm. and the Antichrist figure like tries to take power in Jerusalem. Yeah. And then the great battle of Armageddon, these are probably, you know, Har Megiddo, and, and he takes place. 
and then Jesus will come back. So to a lot of evangelicals, it started being, first of all, we want the United States to be blessed, and the United States will be blessed if it supports Israel. And they also viewed the United States as equally, uh, are uniquely blessed anyway, that's American exceptionalism fusing into that, and the idea that, well, we, we've been given gifts by God, so we should use it to help God's people, which they viewed as the Jews, right? And so, which, side note, God's people is everybody, but, you know, so they're technically right. The Jews are his people, but so are Americans and Palestinians and Europeans and, which again, I know Europeans aren't a monolithic group, but Germans and French. And anyway, the point is they started viewing it as we have to support Israel because Israel's success hastens the coming of Jesus, Mm. right? Because once they get control of all Jerusalem, once they have their own state, once they've dealt with everything else, then we will be able to see Jesus come back. And it was also mixed with a lot of leftover British colonialism that viewed the Palestinians that had been there natively at the time of the creation of the state of Israel, they viewed them kind of like Americans had viewed Native Americans here during settlement, which was these are kind of backwater, ignorant, not so much fully Western European humans Mm -hmm. And the Jews are much more developed and intelligent. And, you know, there's this kind of colonial racism going on. And all this stuff gets mixed into the the nasty Kool-Aid cocktail of a really poor theology to the point where, especially the Christian coalition in the 70s and the 80s and all that, where in the United States, up until recently, whether you were Democrat or Republican, right, it, it was pretty unanimous, American you know, domestic policy was always, you support Israel. You just, you just support it. And there was really not a lot of debate about that. And even now that there's starting to be debate in some circles, I know particularly in the Democratic Party, in the House of Representatives with, with certain infamous Congresswomen, primarily, uh, there, even then you've had a large chunk of the Democratic Party and the Republicans join together to censor these people and, and things like that. There's still a lot of debate uh, about no, you can't really d- debate Israel. They're they're our ally, of course. When we're dealing with Iran and a lot of failed states and whatnot, and and if, and of course, there's all the voters, all the Christian voters, and everybody else wants you to support Israel. So why lose votes? And it's weird, especially as American, to think we're one country, and that Israel gets a lot of play in our politics for a country that's not even next to us. It's not even you know same continent, obviously. I mean, I know there's two oceans, but we, we obsess about that country even when nothing's going on. Which is, le- yeah, which, which two things. A, the Left Behind series really is the Left Behind series. The first book that was okay. published okay. is Left Behind, yeah. but everything else has a different name. But like, got it. the U.S. has used 43 of its 80, I think it's 43 of its 84. I think that's right. Um, vetoes that it's used. Vetoes yeah, that it's at used. The United Nations Security Council. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it is used forty three of them on Israel specifically, like to to in order to, to protect or defend Israel. Half of its half of its veto power, or half of its yeah, half of its vetoes being dedicated to the protection of one key ally. Which, by the way, the U.S. actually has other non NATO allies in in the Middle East now. We're not, like, as dependent on Israel as we used to be to the point that now it's anything more than assumed political suicide to support them versus actual political suicide to support them. Although, interestingly enough, lately, because of of Iran and everything else, Saudi Arabia, several other countries are now leaning on Israel because of its military might to to help them against 
you know, Iranian hegemony in the area. So it's it's a really mixed up political scene yes. over there that's constantly shifting. And I get that. Like, that's why I don't think you and I can solve this. There are things that we don't know about that people with much higher security clearances than you and I you know, do. And I understand as in they have them. Yes. As in they have them. Correct. (laughs) The, I have security clearance for my house. I know my garage door code. Um, the, the, but the reality is like, yeah, there's a lot of facets to this that we don't know. So we can only speak to what we do. And that's where, that's where our kind of Christianity comes into this because yes, there's a lot of bad theology that, and bad under, you know, bad, just understandings of each other and, and the human condition that play into this. And I would, I would really love for us to to shine a light on some of those perspectives and and see how we can widen our perspective and maybe take a step back because I think there's some inward looking that we can do because while we cannot do anything, you know, in, in the immediate sense to go over there and fix anything, there is something to be said about what we can change about our beliefs and if what our if our belief and our perception shifts, then so does our vote potentially when it needs to. So let's let me be clear on on this of, as far as as we determine it as appropriately, our values change, our perceptions change, and so our voting changes in response to that, and or it stays the same in response to that if if it needs to, and so there is very real difference that we can make when it comes to how the United States has a hand in this, and that depends on how we vote, and we vote based on what we believe and how we perceive things. So th- there's there's a there's this rule in marketing too that people don't make the logical decision. Everyone makes the decision that feels best, even if you logically know what the right decision is. Now, there are times where those two things line up, but for the most part, it, we make decisions with our emotions and what feels better. That's why networking, because you feel better hiring a friend or a family member than you do a complete stranger with, that you've only seen the resume for. And so there's a big part of this that we have to acknowledge our feelings and our emotions about these things and understand how those are tied to the way that we perceive and what we believe about Israelis, what we believe about Palestinians, and what we believe ultimately, I guess, about each other. And I that's why I'm glad to have this conversation and hopefully shine some perspective and, and widen the perspective of anyone that's listening. So, you know, let's let's dive into this as far as as far as US. As far as the Christian support for Israel and Christian support in all of this, where, you know, we have mentioned that a lot of it does come from the heavy, modern support comes from the heavy influence of the Left Behind series, which the first book I think was published in 1995. Um, And so there is, and yes, a lot of, a lot of mainstream Christianity. I mean, 1995 doesn't seem like a long, long time ago, but it was what, 25, 26 years ago. So we're getting, we're getting to the point that it's, you know, almost 30 years ago. And that's a definitely enough to, to create some shifting. That's a generation. Yeah. That's an entire generation. That's a, that's definitely enough to make a large difference in the culture and, and pervasive beliefs and attitudes within Christianity. Yeah. No, I mean, right off the bat, just to, you know, speed along it, this is just it as, as evangelical Christians, Western Christians, however you choose to self-identify if you're in the, that Christian sphere here in the United States, the first thing we need to do is own up to, we have a lot of bad theology influencing how we approach this. And I don't even want to get specific as I mean, bad theology. Like, I, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't agree with the left behind series as anything other than entertainment. There is no biblical foundation to that. 
And I'm not even wanting to start debating the book of Revelation. I thought Kirk Cameron the wrote do that. a book of the Bible, though. I thought he wrote actually the New Testament. Did he not? No. What is he, fireproof? He did not know the Apostle Paul. What, what, is, well, what is fireproof? That, that is a really, it is a Christian attempt at making sure Chick-fil-A was in a movie. <laughs> so, I mean. <laughs> well done. Well played, just, sir. Well, well just, played. Anyway, I, well, because uh, yeah, you're fireproof, spicy chicken sandwich. Okay, so. Well, I just went, okay. The focus I was trying to get at, I don't even want to debate individual denominational interpretations of Revelation. I don't think we even have to go that far when we talk about bad theology underpinning it. What I mean by this is a collective bad theology in that apparently because of either our political, well, because our political views are impacting our theology instead of our theology impacting our political views in this country anymore, and, and it's not new, it's just accelerated in the in the last several years. My concern is if you hold a theology that ranks people in order of value, perceived value, or whatever, and this could be in multiple different areas, either from ethnicities to, you know, xeno, xenophobia to, you know, all these things. Any theology you hold as a Christian that says one group of people is more important than another, whether that's you versus someone else or somebody you think mm-hmm. is your friend versus somebody else or whatever, uh, that's not the gospel, and there's nowhere in the Bible you can support that, period. And a lot of Christian voting blocks in the United States, whether Democrat or Republican, a lot of our support for Israel is the idea that Jew, good, Palestinian, bad, or Palestinian, subhuman, or Palestinian, terrorist, or Palestinian, uneducated, moron— or whatever else. And my point is, regardless of whether Hamas is a terrorist organization, regardless of you know all the political arguments we like to bring up, well, Israel has a right to defend itself and nobody wants missiles raining down on it. Well, I mean, all those are valid arguments, but then no one turns around and goes, so the Palestinians don't have a right to not worry about missiles raining down on them. And, and what, you know, it's like, at what point did we hold a theology where Palestinians are subhuman? Mm-hmm. Right? And so forget the Bible for a moment in specific theologies. The church in the West and in the United States is holding a policy where we cannot even discuss this issue without subconsciously or consciously approaching it with the idea that one group of people is less a people than the other. Yes. And I'm not just meaning politically, I mean as worth before God. And last I checked, both as a minister and as a Christian, all people are equal at the foot of the cross. I was going to say, there, there Palestinian, are— Palestinian, Jew, American— There are three great equalizers. I actually believe there are four in Scripture, but theologically, if you don't agree with me about the Sabbath, then there are three. And those three are creation, sin, and the resurrection, or like in salvation. Those are the big three equalizers. The idea being that, um, the idea being that at creation, everyone is equal, and all human beings are created in the image of God. Sin, all have fallen short, right? And then salvation that all have equal access to God and to salvation. And those three things are the reason why we we shouldn't have any sort of understanding that we are better than anyone else or that someone is better than someone else or that, that anyone has more specific value. Now there may be a moment where someone is being devalued and we need to we need to we need to boost the equalize. Yes, that we need situation. to equalize that yeah. absolutely. And I, I and I do want to provide clarification to to something that you did mention, which is theology informing politics versus politics informing theology. That's true whether or not you believe in God at all, because even even then that informs your politics. 
right? Versus the other way around. So what we're not saying is we want a whole bunch of Christians to go legislate Christianity into everyone's life or whatever other And we've talked system. about Christian nationalism in a past podcast, yeah. so go so, look that up if but, you want but to know. But what, <laughs> what we're specifically saying is the idea being that we don't want politics to change who we are um, given the current state of politics, but rather that our beliefs, values, and the way that we live our lives should inform our politics. So let I just want to be like 100% clear there. Um, there's probably already someone who, who was like, nope, I'm good, and ne- never got here. But if you if you have been listening still, that that is what we meant, you know, by that. I, I'm, I can pretty safely say I think that's what Henry meant there. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I agree with you. And I think that everyone is equal at the foot of the cross, as you said. And currently we are, or the way that we have traditionally handled this topic is we have not believed, or we have not, we have functionally not believed it. And that's a problem. That's a significant problem. And whether that's ignorance or commission, like intentionality, it's still wrong. We have to own up to the fact that the way we've approached this issue is not in a way that God, I, I know, well... That sounds really arrogant to say that, but I don't believe God would approach it in the sense that it's devaluing a human being, no matter their ethnicity. Just like I'm against anti-Semitism, I'm against anti-Palestinianism. That's probably not a term, but you know what I mean? Like, don't put people down. Yeah. Right? You don't have to tear people down to build Jesus up. Yep. Right? You don't have to, which which leads to the second thing. So in individual theologies aside, the first thing that really bugs me, we need to own up here in the West as Christians, is any position you hold that's devaluing a group of people. I didn't say that means you have to, not agreeing with them is not devaluating them, but I'm just saying anything that devalues another group of equally created, equally valuable human beings, that's already a no-go. You're already on, that should be a big red flag somewhere that you've messed something up. Yes. Second thing that I think also as Christians should be pretty clear in scripture, no matter the individual interpretations of end time events, any theology that, that, emphasizes the success of an earthly political system over the, quote, this is religious language, I know, so apologies to our viewers that may not hold to our particular beliefs that I'm using this charged language, but the kingdom of heaven, right? So in other words, a lot of Christians, especially in America, are more obsessed with either America becoming a Christian nation, again, that's Christian nationalism, we've talked about that at a different podcast, or the nation of Israel having to succeed for whatever our, at any point we start prioritizing an earthly political system Mm -hmm. over the wider kingdom of God and him restoring the earth, the new, as, as Anglican theologian N.T. Wright says, you know, the, the heaven and earth merging reality, right? And anytime that we are prioritizing one group over the wider, you know, goal, then we're not doing our job as Christians either. Right? I mean, yes, you can be thankful for where you live. I'm thankful for where I live. I've been thankful for the opportunities the United States has given me, for sure, that the West has given me. But ultimately, I can love the flag, but I'm not making love to it. Well, that's one way to put that, but yes, I agree. (laughs) Well, yeah, I know. That was probably a weird analogy, and some people are like, oh, I can't unsee that. But I'm I'm just saying, right, my ultimate loyalty is not to a flag, or to any one country, it's to the kingdom of God. And that means that, yes, I can have my opinions, and yes, I vote my opinions, and I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm thankful for that right. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, any theology that says your loyalty to U.S. or to Israel, or even on the flip side, to Palestine or to Gaza or whatever, 
over another, that's already another red flag that should be flying in the air going, you missed something, you missed something. Yep. I, I, I agree with you. And I think, I think part of the problem is this is, this is, this is the bad theology that I, 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 I think I would want to stake my flag in right now, as far as like what I, what I see as problematic, which is, um, I think a big source for this is the, what we believe about humanity's role in bringing about the second coming of Christ. I think that is a major problem for, and, and this isn't just in this topic, right? This is, this is pervasive throughout. This is pervasive in our denomination. It impacts a lot this of different is, things. Yes. Yeah. This is, this is around, around the, you know, or, or across the board. This is a problem. And the idea being that in the Great Commission, right, you've got Jesus saying, go into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them uh, all that I've commanded you, all that I've taught you. And, and, and this idea being, and then Jesus will, and then, and then the Son of Man will return. And so we, we take that and say, okay, so we've got to preach to all the world. All the world has to hear it before Jesus will come, except for apparently Palestinians. Correct. And so this except is— Except for Palestinians. This— has created a problem, a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of humanity within the second coming of, you know, in bringing about what God has willed. Because the bottom line is, and and I, I think there's some hubris involved in us saying that, you know, this is dependent on us doing this. God, like, I, I, I don't know who, I, this is going to sound really harsh, but like God doesn't need us. And part of the beauty of God's plan of salvation and God's plan of restoration for for the earth and for creation is the fact that God chooses to, to have us be a part of it. And part of what speaks, in my opinion, this is actually why I've been able to, in my mind, stay a Christian despite... I, I'm a Christian ultimately because I still believe it. I, I'm not a Christian because of other Christians. If I was a Christian, like if it was for other people, I'd be out a long time ago. And I actually believe that it speaks to the sovereignty of God that he can still accomplish his plans, you know, through people like me. I genuinely believe that speaks to the sovereignty of God, that somehow we are closer, uh, not, not further from, from, you know, from the second coming and from that restoration plan being complete. And it is a, it's more of the fact that we are privileged to be a part of this rather than God needs us to do this. And God's plan of restoration is bigger than you and me. And that's where I think we get lost in the, we like to be the hero. We read David and Goliath and we think we're David when in reality, we're more like the cowering Israelites on the side. You know, if you're reading it in a, in a, in a, a, what's the analogous way. So, right. You're, you're, if you're trying to use the analogy, then, then in that regard, David would be, Jesus in that, in that situation. Right. But we like to say, you know, you got to be Moses. You got to be David. You got to be like Paul. You got to be like these, you know, you gotta be like Peter, which don't be racist. So don't be like Peter. You got to be like John, which John can't write. Um, so don't be like John, uh, be right legibly and in with proper grammar. So the, but we say that, but for every Moses, there's 600,000 Israelites that were called to just be Israelites. Like I, and that's okay. It's okay to not be Moses, to not be the main character in the story. 
And when when we can do that, that that on its own humbles ourselves, humbles us a little bit, I would hope, and allows us to connect with more people and allows us to see them as equally created beings of of God, because we don't have to be the main character in order to still get the victory at the end. So, yeah, that's that's all I'm going to say there for now. But I'd love to hear your thoughts there if you agree with me, disagree with me or where where you are in this. Well, no, I agree. I mean, it's human nature. Now we can start transitioning into, because I want to say something about Israel next. We'll move on yeah. to that. But I think this is a good transition point to go, again, it's human nature. We like to be in control. That That is human nature, whether you're religious or not, or what religion you have. That's it. And one thing I've noticed, especially about Christians, is it's easier to believe a theology that says I can influence something, especially something bigger than myself. But it's especially compelling to believe something that says I myself can control this external thing, then I have to focus on controlling an internal reality. Yes. Right. And, and, and ultimately let's be honest, <laughs> right. Christians are really sucking at the letting the gospel do anything inside of them thing. Right. I mean, you know, we can vote all we want and make America a Christian nation all we want or help Israel all we want, or, or even help Palestine all we want, whatever. We always talk about some external thing to do. Look, I can control a bakery and who gets a biscuit, you know, and, but no one turns around and does the harder work and says, I need to change me. Mm-hmm. I think there's a multitude of reasons for that. One, because that's even messier. Two, that's even harder. You think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is bad. Wait till you try and deal with your own character deflects. But, you go to therapy right, like three times know, and then and then see just how hard this starts to get, right? Like, I agree with which, you. And by the way, therapy is a beautiful thing, and that's a podcast for another time that yes. the church really needs to invest in some yep. emotional well-being. But anyway, uh, that that being said, right, it's, it's the human nature. And I and I agree with you. The biggest reason why I'm a biblical Christian, I really like how you put it that way. If I, I, I'm, I'm a biblical Christian because I believe it, ultimately, not because of the people, or I would have been gone a long time ago. Because who've... Even like our last episode that blew up so much when we start talking about a lot of people that take on the name of Christ and you're just like, who mercy, how could you? (laughs) Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They frosted their flakes and flaked out. But my point is, right, the reason I'm a biblical Christian is ultimately for me, what I found compelling is when I studied all the major faiths, or at least the major five, I'm not going to say I've studied everything in the world, but of of the major five, when I went through it, what struck me was that any false theology, any false subset of Christianity, any cult, any any sort of religion, I, I think, an animalistic anything out there, what I found is the majority of religions on the planet say, you do X and the deity does Y. Yep. So the lotus point of power is you do something, God responds. And when I read the Bible narrative, not necessarily what churches have taught me, but when I read the Bible narrative, it said the deity does everything and asks me to respond. It it flips the script. And that is what I found very compelling. But I know that's very hard because it takes power, it it takes control away from us as if we really had it anyway. I'm not trying to sound predestinist, but but you know where I'm getting at is uh, the power is somewhere else. The, the need is somewhere else, and we just don't like that. So we generate that need artificially. Yep. We create a narrative, a different narrative where we can be the hero in our own story. Yep, and that gets us in trouble in a lot of areas, including in this one. Yes, and I I would love to see a shift where we. Well, let me let me just say this. I it is far easier for us to 
point out the speck in a brother's eye instead of the log in our own. And that is true for both Henry and I in this episode as we talk about bad theology, because there are ways that that Henry and I, and, and, and we we are close friends. I just saw him this morning at an event that we were at, even though we live in different cities. It's been a long day for both of us. The, yes. the, uh, the, but the, the reality of, of this is we have our own issues that we work on. And just, I mean, just even prior to recording this, I was, I was working through some conflict with someone very dear to me and, and some difficult things. And, and, and these are, we have our own battles that we fight. We have our own things that we're facing. So we don't say this as if we're not also guilty of those same things or of doing that. The hard work is the work that you have to do within your own heart in order to be the person that God has called you to be or that God is creating you and transforming you to be. And so we say all of this, and anytime we talk about Christianity in general, we're talking to ourselves just as much. And I don't just mean that to be safe or to be like we're being honest. Those are these are things that we're saying to each other to also remind us to consider those same things as we have these conversations. If anything, as you hear us talking about it, really, it's us holding each other accountable to doing those things. And that's why I very much appreciate this conversation and, and appreciate these reminders. So, you know, as as we're hitting an hour, Henry, let's let's transition then into into discussing what we would what we would encourage for. From the perspective that we have, let's, which is always going to be limited given our life experience and, and background and, and geographic location, what, um, yeah, what would you or, or what would you want to say as far as to Israelis, to Palestinians, and, and so on? Because we, we have those kind of two main groups that we are referencing here. Yeah. Obviously, from my perspective, and I say this somewhat, I have traveled to Israel and the West Bank. I'm not going to say I've done it a million times, but I, I have been there. The last time was about, well, obviously about a year before COVID, so a couple of years ago. And the thing that struck me when I was there, which was the first time, honestly, I'd been there, I, you know, first of all, the Israelis are wonderful people. And, and so are the Palestinians. I got into the West Bank. I didn't get into Gaza because that's near impossible. There's The borders were closed and, and, you know, the border wall, and it's just not a politically safe situation. And, uh, you know, I just that yeah. was not possible. However, I did know for sure on this trip that it wouldn't be fair to me or to any of the locals if I didn't make a concerted effort to get off the tourist track and get into the West Bank. I wanted to see mm-hmm. Pal- Palestinian areas and not just like Bethlehem, which is what tourists do. They get on a bus and ride through the border fence and they go to Bethlehem and then get back on the bus and they leave. That's not the West Bank. That's, you know, a tourist trip. So I wanted to get up into Ramallah, into Jericho, into into all of the, which by the way, side note, I didn't realize they grew so many bananas in the West Bank. You don't think of it being farming country. Would you say but that it's man, bananas? How many, uh, ba- that, they, that uh, they have so many bananas? All, all I can say is that joke was very appealing. Anyway, well so we were, uh, yes, thank you. Thank you. I didn't mean to slip up on your joke. So uh, we I was were, just about to I say we're all on a slippery slope. <laughs> I hate you. You got, you beat me there. <laughs> uh, well done. Well done. Uh, uh, yeah. My, my potassium levels are high right now. So anyway, Kay. so I was, and I was in the West Bank, spent some time there. First full day in there. It just really struck me. I, I was struck with the situation they were living in. And I'm not just talking about the poverty that is there, 
But between all of the, the border wall that I had to obviously go through, and by the way, I couldn't take my rental car into the West Bank. For any of you who have traveled there, you know what I'm talking about. All your rental agreements forbid you from going into the like West Bank because they're like, you. this will void the contract. Uh, you, you know, you, you'll be responsible for paying for the whole car because they think it's going to be stolen or bombed or, or, or whatever else. So you have to always like rent a car on the other side of that wall or, or pay a driver to get you around or whatever not. Where do you uh, leave your risky in Where do you leave your rental car? I left it at the Airbnb that I was staying oh, at. Oh, okay. Jerusalem, okay. I was like, what? You just leave it on I, one side of the wall? First of all, yeah. And then it disappears there because somebody yeah, exactly. else steals it on the Israeli side. Yeah. Anyway, no. Uh, so, you know, went into the West Bank and it wasn't just the wall. It was, there were military checkpoints, IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. There was Israeli checkpoints in the middle of nowhere on dirt roads for no apparent reason near nothing that I could see that had any sort of import like every couple miles, like mm. we would get stopped at checkpoints. And I think the only reason we got through them with any sort of speed was that I had a U.S. passport and I'm pasty white. So, you know, they look at me and curly brown hair and they're like, <laughs> you know, yeah, he's, he's, yeah, move along. It's kind of like star Wars, move along, move along. Yeah. So, so I was going through there and and it just struck me as odd. I was like, I don't understand. Like maybe I'd get checkpoints by the wall. Although don't get me started on the wall. Well, I'll, I'll circle back to the wall actually, no pun intended. And, and all these checkpoints and all these other things. And I was just like appalled. I said, the only point it seemed to accomplish was to slow everything down and annoy everybody. Oh, so like right? bureaucracy and in general. Yes, but this was personified with guns, mm. right? So, you know, you're going you're going through this, and I just remember feeling, and I'll, now I'll circle back to the wall to keep this somewhat brief. I know everyone's like, "Haha, brief him," uh, you know, with the graffiti and the guard towers and the again military checkpoints and the reasoning why they say it's there to prevent suicide bombers and all the other things. The West Bank really felt to me, and this is and it's nowhere as extreme as the Gaza Strip is. The West Bank really struck me as a ghetto. And I know that's politically charged language, but I do have a point in saying that. It really struck me as a ghetto. It was an impoverished people with no freedom of movement, where even inside the area they're supposed to have freedom of movement, they don't have freedom of movement, where you know it's heavily militarized, very limited options, and, and, and I just remember thinking to myself, and this is what struck me as I was I was coming out of there, I said, this, this strikes me as a ghetto. And why that was shocking to me is, again, as someone who's been in concentration camps and in Poland and in Warsaw, where there was a giant ghetto, and, you know, and I've seen museums there and whatever, it struck me. I said, now, wait a minute. How in the world do you have a ghetto here or something that even, maybe it's not the same thing. I don't want to say it's exactly the same, but something that has enough overtones or undertones or subtleties to it or whatever, that it makes you think about that. And it's being put in place by a people who were exterminated in ghettos, right? With walls and with random checkpoints and with no freedom of movement mm -hmm. and with poverty and whatever. And, and I say all that to say, talking about the human condition, I can't, I can't answer all the political stuff. That's, that's absurd. That's beyond the point of this podcast. But when we talk about the human condition, the Arab Spring also showed us this. So this isn't just an Israeli problem, but we are talking about it in an Israeli context. 
It has been shown that without some sort of external intervention, either from some sort of well-trusted and courageous political leader like apartheid in South Africa with Nelson Mandela, or, you know, a, a military intervention or some sort of nation building or something else like that, an oppressed people, when they gain freedom, will often turn around and impress another people or each other in the same manner in which they were oppressed. You know, it, it's cultivated tendencies. What you've learned, what you've yeah, been modeled, bully, you know, where, where your the pains bullied are. The bully becomes the bully. I mean, they're, they're, you see this at a grade school level, but I mean, it's, and I'm not trying to trivialize it, but I am trying to put it in a language that I yeah. think all of us can can identify with. And I think that's the easiest way to do it right now. Yeah, the victims become the victimizers. And, and it struck me, and so to me, and again, this is just my opinion, and I'm not trying to mean this to say that Israel's somehow the worst nation that ever existed and that they're the only ones that do this or whatever, because as I said, you see it everywhere, but we're talking about human conditions in this conflict. And, and to me, it really struck me as Israel that has faced a lot of anti-Semitism, that's faced mass extermination on a scale that's almost unimaginable, right? All these things, and yes, have gone through a couple wars where the nations around them wanted them exterminated. I, I, with all of that said, they are turning around and imposing even if it's a moderated form, in some way, shape, or form, they are imposing a reality on the Palestinian people that is almost, in, in many ways, identical to what they themselves were persecuted with. And to me, I found that both ironic and extremely sad. Yeah. And we're not saying that they've right. gone to the same extremes or anything like that, but I, I think what, what you're saying is, is you're seeing a lot of the same—you're you're seeing a lot of echoes— of what was yeah. done in the past to them. So we're not saying like, like, well, they did this terrible thing and, and Israel hasn't done that. That's not what we're, we're not trying to make this a one-to-one. We're not doing one. whataboutisms. Yeah, or, and this isn't a one-to-one yeah. -one comparison. It's not. And, and the, the reality is that I, I would agree with you that, that there are echoes here of somewhere along the line in history, Israel started to care less about ending the conflict and became more about managing it, which meant managing Palestinians. And that's where you're starting to see the increase in, in settlers moving into the West Bank. That's where you start to see a lot of the, and with, and with it, military presence, which starts to force out Palestinians. And you start to see... That's changing the facts on the ground. Yes, that's exactly what it's doing. And so, like, what we're saying is there are echoes of this that are very telling and that are very alarming just in general. And I, and I think there's nothing wrong with pointing that out. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. We're pointing this out from the human condition, just like we think evangelicalism, Western Christianity needs to own up where their poor theology and viewpoints of people, primarily the Palestinians, are, are fueling this conflict. Uh, I, I think, you know, if I had the opportunity to speak to my Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, and not even, and even non-Jewish ones that are Israeli citizens or residents there, I would say, I would beg you to please give some thought again about are the policies you're enacting, are the things that you're doing, and probably in your mind, for, I, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt, for good reason. I mean, everyone wants to feel safe. Everybody wants to have, you know, the ability to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, as American as that phrase is, right? But in the efforts of doing that, are you doing so in a way that you would not want to be treated, yep. right, in the same boat, or historically has been bad for you, so why are you turning around and doing that to someone else. We need to own up in so many ways as human beings to the areas where we ourselves, like you said, the speck in our eye or the log, you know, the speck in our brother's eyes and the log in our own, 
uh, we need to own up. There's things that we're doing, and you mentioned it earlier with drone strikes and all this. Are are we enacting things in the name of solving a problem that are just further fueling a cycle of never-ending violence that are actually pushing us further and further and further away from the solutions we actually claim to want. Yeah. Right? Like a fly at the windowsill where the window looks like the the, the outside's there and that's the way out, but you keep beating your head and fl- flapping your wings harder and harder and harder and harder when the door is open 30 feet behind you and you could fly out of it, but you waste all your strength and die on the windowsill because you couldn't turn around and look for an alternative. And I'm not trying to say Israel hasn't looked at multiple alternatives again, but I'm just saying in my limited view, Israel probably needs to own up to the fact that independent of some sort of collective thinking about this or, or I hate to use religious terming again, repentance or, or, or some sort of intervention or help from somebody or whatever, they're, they're going to go down the human, very human path of doing the same thing that's been done to them to others. Yep. And it won't look exactly the same because time changes and technology changes. And, and, and you know, and I'm not trying to make it a one-for-one Holocaust versus what's happening in Palestine or the apartheid in South Africa immediately to, to Palestine or the way Palestinian citizens, which the majority of them aren't, uh, you know, Arab Israelis is what they like to call them, in, in Israel. Yeah. Right? Uh, There's just... I'm not saying that's one for one, but there's a lot of echoes. And where there's an echo, there's a chord that got hit somewhere. And that needs to be traced back to its source. And there needs to be conversations held about that. Because until that's done, they're just going to, you're going to be thinking you're solving the problem and you're just making it worse. Yes, I agree. I agree 100%. And I, I hope that that is, is heard the way that we, we intend it to be heard, or at least that you intend it to be heard. I'm not you, so I don't, you know, we are not one voice, but we do. <laughs> we'll find out in the comments how well that yeah, got right? taken. Um, the, but I, but I, I do agree with you, and I think there are, there are some pretty clear warning signs uh, of that happening, and I think that there is a there is a need for us to have those conversations, and I'm very glad in an age of social media that I think right now a lot more people are open to this kind of conversation than they would have been even, you know, six months to two years ago. I I think there's a lot that is coming out now that we, um, that is shifting public opinion and opening people up to, to more authentic conversations. Cause the bottom line is when you see human suffering, you are changed by it. And let me be clear that also goes for when you become more and more numb to it. If you are the one engaging yeah. in human suffering, you have been changed by human suffering. The difference being you've become a, you know, more callous and hard and cold and 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 rather than an indifferent, rather than someone who's more empathetic and caring and, and, and sympathetic too. And so I like no matter what, you are changed when you either see or witness, you know, see, witness, engage in whatever and, and perpetuate human suffering. Any of those, any of those are things that transform a person. And so I, I'm very glad that I, I, that we are a little bit more open to the conversation than we would have been a while back. And I'm, I'm grateful for it because like, honestly, up until recently, I didn't, I hadn't spent any time really digging into this and digging into and understand. I did not even understand the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict and, and their relationship, I didn't understand all of it until probably a couple weeks ago, right? Like, it has not been that long for me that I've really 
dove in and, and tried to understand this. And I think we're seeing a lot more and more people like me show up that are saying, well, let me understand this more. Let me try and figure this out. And no, I like, yes, we, we had talked about doing this episode. And, and so we needed, I needed to do some research there, but I had started at least looking into it and digging in this podcast just helped me get the motivation to really dive in at that point. And so there is a need for us to do that. And whatever your motivation needs to be, um, I, I hope you can find it and dive in and, and, and start to understand this because it's really important too. So with that, um, let's, uh, let's, as, as we're, as we're bringing this to a close, Henry, I know there's one more thing that we have, that we had mentioned before that you'd wanted to, to say. So I want to give you the, the opportunity to say that. Yeah. So let's make one final comment. I want to direct towards the Palestinians, um, in the West bank and Gaza. Although, as I said, I've not been in Gaza, and this is true, again, of the human condition. I mean, you know, I can make the joke, first lesson, politicians suck, right? And if you're a politician watching this, I love you as a person. But, you know, uh, <laughs> I just don't have a lot of, you know, politicians, politics, coming from the two Greek words, polo, meaning many, and ticks, bloodthirsty, money-sucking, power-hungry people. Anyway, so- That's bananas. So, ah, ah, ah. Yes, now we can start making date jokes because they make a lot of dates this there is, too. This is going to be is the bad, right? You want to walk up and be like, "This is going to be the Bananity <laughs> Podcast instead of Absurdity." Now, well, the, welcome to the Bananity Podcast with Henry and Ryan. Will that be mistaken for Hannity? No, anyway. So, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I'm, I'm please, Hannity on please, Bananity. Please, so, Jesus, don't let this ever <laughs> let that ever come to pass for so many reasons. Okay. Anyway, I, I don't think there'll be any 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 confusion. But anyway, so now people are like, aha, we know your politics. No, 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 I'm just, it's just a play on words. So anyway, moving to the Palestinians, uh, not only politicians suck, yes, but, and that's true of anyone. And again, there's something to also be said about the conflict that Israel's had four elections and general elections in the last like year or two. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister who's under a corruption investigation and several other things, was not able to form a coalition. And it, the mandate was handed by the Israeli president to a series of opposition parties and to create a coalition in the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament. They needed the help of an Arab party. And they said they wouldn't join in any coalition talks while a war was happening. And so I, I, I'm sure there's politics involved too, while Israel said, let's go all out and have 11 days of shooting and war porn on the television. But all, all that aside, back to the Palestinians, conflict begets conflict, violence begets violence, right? And, and you know, Christianity, we have a phrase that we take out of the Gospels that Jesus said, he who lives by the sword dies by it, right? And this isn't just in Palestine and Israel, but you mentioned it before with arms sales and whatnot. Just know if this is going to be a swinging match between who has the bigger bat, you will lose every single time in an environment where, let's see, you can't even import like concrete and rebarb in the case of the Gaza Strip, because Israel says they don't want them to build bunkers with it. Did They're limiting just, supplies for rebuilding. Did you just did you just combine re, rhubarb and rebar? Or is rebarb a thing? I think it might actually be rebar. And I think I it's just I said think rebarb. You just, <laughs> yeah. I think you just could be just combined rhubarb. The Which food item. I, I love I, I love rhubarb, by the way. It's not very popular in the South, but my mother was from Maine, so I, I my favorite dessert, strawberry oh, rhubarb. Oh, so, so that a was a Freudian slip. Okay, good. Glad to, a Freudian glad, slip, yes. Glad to know where that came from. Because I'm so spoiled in the West, after I'm done with this podcast, I can go make a pie, and Gaza Strip can't even have a house to live in. But anyway, Which is the point ridiculous. to the Palestinians. 
it's absurd. So the point I was making to the Palestinians is if this is going to be a violence versus violence, unless something massively changes, like Iran or somebody else manages to somehow smuggle in a gazillion billion weapons and and all of a sudden you get tanks and aircraft and, and whatever else, you're going to lose that fight and you're going to keep ending up in this never ending every couple of years. You're going to get some sort of military you know, amount of missiles or something else. And then Israel goes, time to beat them back into the stone age, right? You know, and then we have a loss of life again. And then you spend five years trying to rebuild and then Israel bombs it all again. And it's just been this cycle that has not solved a thing for decades. And I don't want to minimize the suffering and the frustration. And again, people turn to violence when they don't, when they've lost hope, when they think there's no other way to get attention, there's there's no other way for a solution to present itself. So I, I don't want to minimize. I mean, I'm not excusing violence. I'm just trying to sympathize with realizing why people would be turning toward that. I don't want to just say everybody that turns toward that wants to be a terrorist. I think that's that's too broad a brush. You know, people turn to violence even in the U.S. when they've run out of hope or they've run out of other options in their mind. Whether they have or not is immaterial. It's just that's why people turn to violence. Mm-hmm. And my point is, if you're going to solve this, my, my appeal to you would be violence isn't going to solve it. It's just giving further, no pun intended, ammunition to Israel or anybody that doesn't want to support your cause to go see, you know, that they have to be dealt with and they're just a bunch of violent people or whatever. And I know that's not fair. And I do want to recognize that you're like, well, that's not fair that the burden has to land on us when, you know, so much more of the power in this this dynamic is in Israel's hands. I understand that, but I, and I'm saying this from a Christian perspective where we, somebody has to take ownership at some point. I'm not saying you just excuse the violence or the abuse or whatever you've suffered, right? But I, I'm just saying we have to start somewhere. And since we're talking about the human condition with every group, I'm saying for Palestine, for the Palestinians, violence is not going to solve this. Just like it's not solving it for Israel, and I, I and it think hasn't been solving it for Palestine. It, the the several times it's been tried since in the, the past. beginning, yeah, yeah, and and I would say one of the things that encouraged me in this last encouraged in in the eleven days of conflict is seeing all of the Palestinians that have some sort of residency or citizenship in Israel that were starting to go on strike in all of these cities in mainland Israel. And, and, you know, turning to more things that political scientists would recognize as nonviolent movements that a lot of people appro- uh, first point to, to like the Milosevic, anti Milosevic campaign in Serbia after the Yugoslav war and the, and the Bosnian Serbian crisis and, and Kosovo and all that other stuff in the early 90s. These nonviolent movements, things like the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, mm-hmm. right? I, and, and I know. And I know all of these are, are limited examples because I mean Ukraine's no, but, another I mean, issue. You can we even could talk go to the fact of worked, but. you can even point to the fact of the increased social media presence for this and coverage, yep, the media civil coverage rights for movements. This. Yep. All of yep. this plays into nonviolent responses to this that I think are starting to shift public perception, which public perception does mean something when you're talking about billions of of military aid going to, you know, the uh the the bigger uh, the bigger stick in the fight. Yeah. And I'm not, and again, I'm trying so hard not to sound insensitive because I know how insensitive can sound. A white guy is telling you this who doesn't live there and is not, my life is not an immediate risk. But I, I'm just saying the nonviolent path, think Gandhi and India and all this other stuff. I mean, it's cliche or Nelson Mandela. I mean, Mandela spent a ton of time in prison before any sort of success started coming out. 
in the 70s and 80s were tons of people always protesting South African embassies, and it seemed like nothing was going to change and nothing was going to happen, and then overnight all of a sudden it just collapsed. Yeah. Right, this kind of thing. I, my, my recommendation was we have you have to turn from violence. Politicians are just using you. I will go out there before someone says it in the comment. There is no excuse for hiding behind humans, whether that's uh, evangelicals hiding behind Israel and against Palestinians, or Hamas hiding in residential areas against children and women and putting their missile batteries underneath the basements of stuff. You know, uh, whatever. There's no excuse for that. Which on there's also side, I, on any side. Pretty, but, yeah, I was gonna say. I'm pretty sure I've, there's also record of Israel doing this, doing doing similar is using using. Oh yeah. This, yes. Again, we're so, not trying yep, to play yep. one side is correct. Guiltless this and the isn't other one a is what aboutism. This is not what that is. Correct. Yeah, I'm just, just talking to the human condition. Violence begets violence, and it doesn't solve anything. It looks like the way out, but you get further from your solution. And I don't, I don't want to see any more Palestinians die. I'm not saying they won't. And unfortunately, world history is showing us there's going to be more deaths. And even in nonviolent struggles, there's deaths. You mm -hmm. know, uh, look at Belarus right now and shootings after the the election there back back in October or whatnot. So I I, I know. It's not as easy as, oh, just go on strike and whatever, and it'll solve itself. But I, I'm going to plead, stop giving, as hopeless as it is, please, I would just encourage you, stop giving power to people that's interest is in maintaining power at your expense. Right? And that's mm -hmm. on both sides. I think Israel, I mean, if I want to say one political thing, I think Israel and Hamas both have an interest in keeping the other one around. Because as long as Hamas is there shooting at them, Israel doesn't have to fight a two-state solution. And as long as Hamas is right there, uh, you know, Hamas has a reason to exist and, and to have some extra power against Fatah and the West Bank. And again, Israel loves it because it dilutes the power of the Palestinian Authority to have Fatah and Hamas hate each other and one being designated a terrorist group. And they argue, we can't negotiate with them. There can't be a two-state solution because— yeah. No, they're terrorists. And so everybody's just happy to sit in their camps and blame the other one and just keep the status quo. And political power always loves the status quo. Yep. Right? And I don't want to see the status quo anymore because it's helping nobody. No. It, so I, I'm going to stop with that. Nope, I agree with you. And I think that this is a pretty good place to wrap up and 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 bring this to a close. And and like I said, I at the beginning of all this, we are— and, and Henry reiter reiterated this just now, we are two guys largely disconnected from a lot of this. So the majority of our conversation and, and focus comes in within the groups that we can personally speak to and, and belong to. Uh, but the one thing that I want to say is you can have an informed opinion and an opinion on pretty much any topic you want. And you we need to we need to free ourselves up to have conversations. If there are things that Henry and I got wrong, we need to know that and we, we need to we need to correct and, and do better in, in, in some ways, right? And in, in those areas. But the bottom line is just because you either don't belong to a group or don't, um, or, or not, you know, one first person involved in something doesn't mean that you don't have the right to have an opinion um, or even speak to it. And, and just so we're like, just so we're clear, that's part of why absurdity exists is specifically so that we can model the fact that you don't have to have a PhD to talk about every single topic within society, religion, and culture, that we can have these conversations and figure out how to navigate them. What you're seeing is Henry and I trying to figure this out as we go, just like anyone else. And, and mistakes are how you learn. Correct. That's This is a very transparent look into that into that process. And so I hope that it's been beneficial to you. I hope it's been helpful to you. And if, if there is something that we have said or done that, that has offended anyone, we, we, we please communicate with us and let us know. 
And we, you know, obviously if we're just not your, you know, not your type for podcasting or for, for YouTube, whatever, you don't want to listen or, or that's different. We're not for everybody. And if you just don't like it, that's, that's a completely different thing. You can still tell us that doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is if you did like it, but there are things that we need to do better or things, ways that we can improve, we value that feedback and we want to do better uh, wherever we can because we want to provide a high quality experience for you and we want to be better human beings, better Christians. And like we said, there is a log in our own eye in this as well. And we probably need help seeing it where we need to. So with that, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of this journey. If you haven't, make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you are listening or watching this on, and we will see you next week.